Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of The Climate Angle, a podcast where we examine headline and not headline news from the UK and around the world and ask the often missed question, what's the climate angle? All too often, the news we are exposed to neglects to address the climate crisis or consider the role and impact of climate change on a problem or situation. We often find that consideration of the climate crisis in news stories most readily, frequently, and or easily comes when the stories themselves are about a climate disaster. Each episode, myself and a couple of guests will be examining a topical story, event or situation and discussing the climate angle because there always is one. For our first episode, we'll be discussing an important foundational concept because of its role in underpinning how we need to be thinking and talking about climate change, systems thinking. To help us understand this concept, I'm joined by two experts. The first is Richard Calland. Born in the UK, but primarily based in South Africa, he is a lawyer, writer and political analyst. He's a fellow of the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership and Associate Professor of Public Law at the University of Cape Town. Welcome to the first ever episode of The Climate Angle, Richard. Yeah, thank you very much, Shemaya. I'm delighted to be involved in this conversation. I love the title of this podcast series, The Climate Angle, because it captures a really, I think, significant idea that everywhere we look, there's a climate emergency emerging, hitting us. Uh, and therefore, everything we think about, whether it's development economics or public policy or governance, should have a climate angle. So I celebrate this and welcome the opportunity to contribute to this first ever board podcast. Oh, thanks. I'm really happy to have you here. My second guest today is Andrew Watson. Trained as an artist, he exhibited in his hometown of London before entering international education in West Jerusalem 24 years ago, since when he has worked across four continents in a wide variety of positions. He is currently based in Amsterdam. Together, he and Richard founded the organisation Sustainability Education, which we will talk more about later. He also happens to be my dad. Welcome, dad. Well, hello, Shemaya. And uh, good evening, Richard. It's uh, wonderful to be part of this. Uh, I think it uh, reflects the urgency of the situation we currently face across the globe, um, something that Richard and I became particularly conscious of together as partners 10 years ago. Um, I feel I've, I'm always trying to play catch-up because having entered education after eight years doing something else, I couldn't help but... Uh, consider how lost the education sector seemed to be in preparing for a better and more peaceful and more sustainable future, despite the fact that I actually entered education as a teacher because I discovered the International Baccalaureate, uh, to whom I've committed a great deal of my professional and personal um, career and uh, contributions to society. So uh, really looking forward to the conversation. Um, um, I think we're going to look at some key questions aren't we yeah absolutely um and with that in mind we'll get straight into it um richard could you give us a layman's overview of where the concept of systems thinking comes from and what it actually is well i think there's two aspects to it one is that we are thinking about a system here this is the, the climate change problem the climate crisis the climate emergency however you term it is a systemic problem what that means is it cuts across every aspect of, of human life on Earth, as well as the natural world. It has social dimensions, it has economic dimensions, it has governance dimensions, and increasingly it has very important political dimensions. The second is the interconnectedness, the joining of the dots, so to speak. 
And one of my colleagues at Cambridge, Will Day, often puts it like this at the end of his 360 degree tour de horizon of the world and the, the state we're in by saying that we as humanity face a challenge of unprecedented urgency, complex, complexity and interconnectedness. So I think the core thing is that interconnectedness, that the dots are joined. And if you pull one bit of the system, another part will be affected. And to give a very simple very contemporary example. We know that through the course of history internationally, if energy prices go up, the cost of food goes up. The two lines in the graph are intimately connected. And that's a very simple example of how one bit of the system, if you tug it in one direction, will have an immediate impact uh, on the other. And those are what we call the feedback loops. But the point is, we're confronted by a system level crisis, and therefore, we have to contemplate systemic change, systemic transformation, if we're to stand any chance of coping with what lies ahead. Thank you. That was uh, very well put. Is there anything that you'd like to add to that, maybe from a, a, a pedagogical or, or educational perspective, Andrew? Yeah, sure. Um, and again, I think... Uh, perhaps viewing education through the prism of an artist, I viewed all things as one, and I probably made a, uh, the assumption that things, ideas and practice would be connected, not just within an organisation, but across organisations. And, and that's become sort of a, a real passion and, and given me a sense of uh, real purpose about how to organise, lead and bring together different organisations, uh, particularly schools, of course. But within that... Um, educational dimension there are you know we have our own educational ecosystems as well which are made up of several elements first we have a chrono system which is about the influence of time of course the evolution of reform patterns across time how how education has you know certainly from the industrial age has taken shape but stubbornly refused to change that shape I think it was Ford wasn't it who suggested that if he'd asked people what they'd wanted when he was inventing his motor car, uh, they would have asked for faster horses. And I think that's really uh, a very visceral, uh, uh, has visceral relevance for, for the world of education. Then we have the macro system, which is overarching beliefs, the economic and political agenda. So again, you know, uh, this is very consistent with what Richard was talking about in terms of the connect, those connected systems. We have an exosystem, which is, talks about indirect and external environments, such as the government policies, which are sometimes, of course, beyond the control of educational system, at least in terms of autonomy of, it, uh, of, of within schools. Uh, the French national curriculum is a good example of how inflexible education can become. We have external agencies for accreditation and validation, of course, which are also part of that system that we need to sometimes adapt to, to to meet accreditation needs, which has significant value in terms of a kite mark, which parents in particular uh, are very interested in because it helps their, their child uh, access whatever it is they want to do in the future. We have something called a mesosystem, the interaction of the microsystem and the environment, the professional learning and organizational culture within a school. And uh, I know we'll probably talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but you know, for me, the, the, the question is always what place does, does sustainability thinking, what place do the SDGs in particular play in shaping the experience of education in the school? 
And lastly, we have the microsystem, which is the immediate environment, which is about the actions and interactions of school leaders, teachers, staff, parents, governors, and students. So I guess that's about how you live out your values. And if and you can't you can't address one part of that picture without having an impact on the other elements within. Thank you. That was um, quite detailed, and um, you've kind of touched upon some of the things that I was going to ask in a bit, going into a bit more detail about um, how we kind of think about systems as from from your distinct disciplines. Um, so I'll come back to Richard, um, being in law and politics, doing a lot of work in that kind of um, maybe bigger picture systems level. Um, what does systems thinking look like from a legal perspective, from a from a politics and policy perspective? I'm not sure what it should look like. What it looks like right now is that the legal profession in general is struggling to cope with this kind of complexity and interconnectedness. Not in totality, but but like many disciplines, I think it's really having to battle to adjust to this, this new interconnected world. But some people are doing that. And I remember a conversation probably three years ago now, just before COVID, when I met with the senior partner of a major law firm in South Africa, but it's an international law firm. And we had lunch in Johannesburg and he was complaining about the, not the quality of the law graduates from my university, where I'm a member of faculty, but uh, in a way their, their mindset and outlook. He was saying, you're producing good lawyers in the old traditional sense. He said, I don't really need good lawyers anymore. I need professionals who crave complexity was the expression he used. And the reason for that was because he said his clients are clients that come to him who have problems that reflect this interdisciplinary kind of interconnected world we've started to describe in this conversation. In the midst of all of their complexity and the challenge that that particular client may have, there's probably a legal problem, but there's also a governance or a political problem or an environmental one and a sustainability reporting one or some community relations one. I'm thinking here of a, of a mining company. Uh, the mining company's legal problems are likely to include all manner of other issues that are interconnected with those, social, environmental, uh, economic, as well as, as political and legal. And so, in other words, the, the challenge for every sector and, and for the, the, the graduates and the professionals who enter those sectors, whether it's law or other areas, are going to... The challenge is the same. It's to, it's to have the intellectual and professional agility and training that will prepare them to be leaders in that field, given the, the complexity and interconnectedness of the context in which they're going to have to work. I think that's it's really interesting hearing that, because if we come back to the, the, the point of the podcast, looking at kind of everyday news stories that people encounter, um, a lot of them require consideration of law and policy. So if you look at um, the status of climate refugees, for example, um, what's their legal status, their, their ability to actually, you know, for example, seek asylum somewhere else? Because um, I think under international law, there's no kind of explicit definition for a, a climate refugee and their right to seek asylum somewhere. And we still haven't kind of adapted to that, that problem. Um, and just think, thinking about what's going to happen in the next few years, even in within countries, so that the United States, we're ex we can expect to see huge amounts of internal displacement and migration because of climate change. I mean, we kind of already are. Um, what's the kind of the how 
how adaptable is the legal system in regards to, particularly in the US, making that political change in order to support those laws? Yeah, it's a very good example, Shanaim. And, and we know, again, that there's plenty of evidence history where extreme weather conditions, the automatic reaction, the inevitable reaction is that the people affected will move. You know, if your livelihood is, is threatened or devastated by drought, uh, for example, you don't sit around there and starve. You, you try and move to get to somewhere where you can rebuild your life. Mm-hmm. So as the climate angle on, on society, bearing in mind that uh, the population of the world is going to increase from what it is now, approaching 8 billion to over 9 billion by the midpoint of the century, that's a lot of people that and many of whom are going to be on the move searching new safer destinations because of the impact of climate change so that's the climate angle to immigration and to refugee status it's going to present huge political governance and policy challenges for for probably every part of the world i would think so that's really significant and and i'm your question triggered a, a, a immediate recollection of a conversation i had this afternoon with my LLM class on transparency, law and governance. One of the students works uh, at an NGO, an environmental rights uh, NGO, and she was asking me about a conversation she'd had recently with a development bank who basically are reluctant to, well, they want to fund renewable energy, but they don't want to get out of coal yet because they're still following the blueprint of South Africa's energy mix. And they say, well, South Africa's energy mix still includes some coal, Therefore, we should continue to support that because we're worried about jobs and inequality. And I think the pushback to that is, well, it's not a good investment because A, it's going to be a stranded asset very soon. B, it does harm. So on the one hand, you're trying to support the economic development of people, particularly the poorest and most vulnerable communities in society. On the other hand, you continue to fund something that is going to harm them. And that doesn't make sense. It's just not smart. Yeah, and... um... Uh, I also kind of we I think we I'll, I'll let Andrew talk about this in a, in a minute, but also in um, kind of education we experience. Um, I would maybe consider that somewhat greenwashing the idea of just saying, "Oh, we're going to put forward these green policies and say we're doing X Y Z while simultaneously continuing practices that are unsustainable." Um, Andrew, do you want to talk a little bit about what that looks like in education or perhaps in the arts as well? Well, I'd certainly like to talk about it in relation to education because I think there are direct parallels to be drawn between and, and analogies between the idea of, you know, the the problem of coal as a stranded asset, shall we say? And I think you know, the education systems that I've encountered, especially national systems, are populated with stranded assets. And the biggest tragedy of all is that, that we may, if we're not careful, produce a huge number of them in the form of students who are unable to adapt or think flexibly or think in terms of serving each other uh, because they have had such a narrow experience of education which is still um, still um, directed towards uh, content-based learning in particular subject areas which have only come apart because of a, a, an artificial division of, of, of knowledge which may have been relevant at the time of the Industrial Revolution but now is no longer relevant. So that craving complexity that Richard talks, talks about needs to be reflected in how students learn and where they learn and how they learn. And I think in terms of what that means for the educational sector, as as the situation, the global climate 
crisis increases and the situation becomes more urgent, so the responses uh, need to be more radical. Um, and there's a chap called Simon Shinnick who talked about starting with why. It's true he was talking about that message through the lens of the uh, uh, through the lens of Apple and the business sector, but the the, the 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 same is true for education. It is the moral purpose which drives um, who we are and who we need to become. And the role of education is to is essentially uh, transmit the soul of society from one generation to the next, as G.K. Chesterton pointed out. Similarly, it is therefore the, the, the choice of a school, whether they want to be the mirror of society or the change agents of it. And I don't think there is a choice anymore. I think it, one, has to, uh, one has to push, one has to conjure, one has to provoke the leadership in the educational sector as well as cross sectors. But you know, my, my particular work is in education at the moment to say what we're doing is, is not actually good enough at the moment. And to challenge complacent attitudes, to challenge and provoke different ways of thinking, and also provide solutions to what that those those different ways of learning uh, and preparing students, young people, who are going to shape uh, the next generation, but also are going to have to not just survive but thrive in it. Uh, and we need to produce uh, a system which does just that. And at the moment, uh, with perhaps very few exceptions, which you might talk about presently. Uh, it doesn't do that. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, you've kind of, again, touched upon something I'm going to ask ask about in a second, but um, could you could you both um, maybe talk about, you've, you've both kind of lived in different places and maybe between you covered a huge amount of the globe, um, perhaps ironically considering the, the topic of conversation, but um, what are your different... Um, experiences of maybe cultures or languages and how they understand or um or kind of approach a concept like systems thinking do you notice differences depending on where you are is systems thinking easier to get to grips with in germany versus south africa for example or in the netherlands versus east jerusalem that kind of thing uh sure perhaps i'll respond to this first if i may i think i think there are some very graphic differences between uh, certain, as one might expect, between uh, LDCs, uh, less economically developed countries, and more econo economically developed countries. But one might again extend that to the idea of less educationally developed countries and more educationally developed countries. And I think again that con that comparative analysis between international and national systems of education is worthy of great scrutiny, because within the international sector. It's, essentially, you have a, a far greater level of autonomy in terms of the direction of your moral purpose. Where, whereas, national systems are essentially designed to promote the uh, a sustained economy over time. I mean, you know, some countries also get that part wrong. Actually, I think the United Kingdom has lost its way in that sense over the last thirty or forty years. Um, but certainly, in somewhere like East Jerusalem. Uh, Culturally, politically, socially, uh, there was, and I've, I've obviously I worked there for the last two years as, as a director of a K through twelve one thousand student school. Um, sustainability and systems thinking was a foreign language, and the great irony and the tragedy of that is that they are surrounded by um, by the, the harsh evidence on a daily basis of, of climate change and the impact of not thinking in systems. 
so there's dissonance, there's um, there's uh, dereliction, there's there's disappointment uh, on an everyday basis because connections are not being made between uh, the 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 urgent and obvious symptoms of climate change, which are around them all the time, and the need to do something about it. It, uh, so education has become a factory product in a place like that, and I think I think uh, as I said, that's a, there's a parallel to be drawn with Ford and his faster horses. I'll end this particular uh, comment by just making reference to a to a conference I went to yesterday in Amsterdam, an EduTech conference which highlighted uh, uh, myriad uh, inventive, innovative approaches to to, to technology. Uh, and under the banner of preparing students for the 21st century, and I had to reflect with some uh, with some skepticism that, well, a, we're a fifth of a way through that century already, so they're a bit seem to be a bit behind the times in that. But secondly, uh, I, w- I was I was horrified. The words sustainability and, and climate change were absent from any of the conversations that I heard. Uh, and any of the panel discussions, I thought I thought that was extraordinary that that, that would be absent, because because of <laughs> because it's it seems to be so clear to me at least and and some of my colleagues that that should be and needs to be the focus of what we're doing. Yeah, I, my brief contribution on this would be to flip it and say, well, is, where where is it not that people struggle with this issue. And I think that, frankly, pretty much everywhere. Um, and the climate angle, you know, comes and goes. And there are conversations that one has with serious professionals in different places, even my own university, my own faculty, where the climate angle and the sustainability angle is conspicuous by its absence. And you think, where, where what planet are you living on? Um, do you not appreciate that there is very little point for example, continuing to educate young people to become great lawyers, if the legal system breaks down, because society breaks down, it's, it's analogous to the argument we make to business leaders. If you're not willing to accept that business as usual is dead, then you are going to become a stranded asset. Um, we have to recognize that human life on earth is imperiled. There's yeah. an existential crisis here. And joining the dots, therefore, is is a, a very simple but essential act of self-preservation and, and enlightened self-interest, if you like. And the failure of people who have education and power and privilege to recognize that, I find bewildering, frankly. So that's why it's from the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership perspective, it's a leadership issue. And where I see more inventive approaches where people step up, take leadership responsibility and say, we are going to understand this from a systemic perspective and we're going to join the dots and we're going to therefore respond in a way that that reflects that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to bring up um, the new UK, well, relatively new UK Prime Minister um, and the kind of slow but steady kind of decline in environmental regulations and environmental care by the British government over the last 12 years or so. Um, how do we, how do we, what's our kind of our ability in, in the different kind of arenas that we exist in, the different arenas that we work in? How do we 
respond to individuals and organizations who who want to place and seem to only place economy at the center of everything everything comes down to we must cut taxes we're looking at the cost of living crisis it's a very short-term economic thinking processes what do we do about them how do we help and perhaps can i respond first though i think i think that uh, from an educational perspective one has to first of all nurture a sense of hope hope in the in the possibility of of manifesting change and modeling that change ourselves i remember when i first uh, became principal at the international school of florence uh, a lot of students were uh, wanted to go out on the uh, friday strikes inspired by by greta thunberg and um, and some of my colleagues at the time came to me and and and, uh, and aired their concerns that uh, that students might be missing school and uh, my response is there is actually nothing more important than going out to advocate for this kind of change so not only must the students go but you must also go not as chaperones but to demonstrate as well and to make your voice heard so to i think it's 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 absolutely essential to 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 engender a sense of agency in young people and not just and and, and a sense of ethical agency to to demonstrate and, and and to and to model advocacy in its in its multiple forms but also to model sh- uh, culture shift within your own organization and i think i think one of the reasons i am hopeful especially in the education sector is that that the systems can be shifted very visibly and quite and quite quite um, quite cleanly to 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 become uh, to become uh, action oriented sustainable schools is is not is by no means a distant dream I think they're very clear uh, strategies one can deploy to to change the way you do things in a very inspiring and hopeful but meaningful way yeah you're calling for uh, collective action you're calling for protest and I and I, I agree with you uh, we need a revolution. And those are not my words. Those are the opening words of a book about sustainability written by the person who is now King Charles III, uh, the King of England, and who is the patron of the University of Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership. And that book he wrote a few years ago, you know, the British monarchy is not known for its revolutionary instincts or tendencies. Yeah. But Charles... Prince Charles, as he then was, recognised that systemic change requires a revolutionary outlook. You're not going to achieve this through evolution and incrementalism. And the climate science, to bring in the climate angle very directly to this, shows that we've left it too late. And because we've left it so late, we're at the 11th hour, clock is ticking towards midnight. And the, and the, the, the sharpness of the curve of the transition that we now need to undertake, by 2030, get on a completely different economic development pathway by 2030, if we're to stand any chance whatsoever of meeting the Paris uh, Agreement targets for mid-century and the net zero targets that have been set for mid-century, that requires a revolutionary mindset from leaders, from activists, and from all of us working in this sector. Can I, can I just add that one of the things Richard and I very consciously and purposefully do through our sustainability education summits is we do bring together leaders from different sectors with uh, teachers, leaders, and particularly students 
from from uh, from around the world to confront the failure of education to meet their needs, and that and that plays out in very graphic and exciting ways. For instance, we had one of our sponsors in a Berlin summit recently uh, was this, was was uh, given the floor, and they were they were explaining how how much good work they'd done in relation to 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 sustainability. But they didn't reckon on a on a young person at the back of the hall who'd done their reading and their research, who was able to to challenge them directly on their on their proposition. And uh, I think that is the voice that we try to nurture. That's the sense of agency we 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 hope to inspire. And the outcome of that is that is 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 that the the guys who are doing the leadership now, or indeed who have been failing to think in revolutionary terms, have to adjust. And that is the forum we, we try and create, and it has to be action-oriented. And indeed, I think there's some evidence that it's, it's having that effect. I, I always think, whenever I talk about, um, I'll try and give someone an example of systems thinking when they've not really encountered the concept before, I always talk about the, the structure of the British civil service and how we have these kind of disparate elements all working on different policies. And there are clear overlaps between, like, for example, the childhood obesity epidemic. You cannot tackle that just through the health department. You have to use different departments. And my friends who work in the civil service tell me that there's no or very limited collaboration between um, different pockets of government. Um, so I, I use that as an example of the way systems thinking needs to be implemented at a higher level so that they can, first of all, model what systems thinking looks like, but also to practically then tackle problems um, because no problem exists in isolation. No problem can be tackled from the perspective of one discipline. Um, so what are maybe in your kind of ideal world, what are some of the practical things that you would like to see happen on a bigger scale? Well, <clears throat> first of all, uh, very simple, although very difficult solution, is that everybody should have a systems thinking training. Um, and and like any important and difficult, challenging discipline, you can do a, a two-year master's in systems thinking um, at MIT, or you can do a one-hour session with people like us. Uh, and there's different ways of doing it. But any injection of systems thinking into any person at any level in every any country or any sector would be valuable, I think. So I think the responsibility on organisations, again, in any sector, in any country, is to think about that and to insert and invest in some systems thinking training for their people. And, and I, I, you know, it's the one thing I think would make a real difference to people's outlook. Because once you understand the linkages and once you've been presented through the linkages with the science and the information, Unless you unless you are so blind and so enwrapped in the in the commercial interest you're trying to protect as a climate denialist, you will react and respond appropriately to that, and that will lead to to greater action. I think your example of the civil services is, is applies to many many organisations around the world, in different parts of society, and the opposite of systems thinking is linear thinking, and that's what you're describing. And yeah. linear thinking is comfortable. Uh, people and older people have been brought up with linear thinking. But ed the education system, particularly at university level, is still steeped in linear thinking. Try getting uh, different faculties in the university to work together on, on climate, which is necessary. They're scientists, science, yeah. economic, social, philosophical, 
psychological whole virtually every faculty has a climate angle but try and get them to work together on it very difficult and my daughter to bring her into the picture when she tried to find an inter interdisciplinary um, degree to study as an undergraduate anywhere in the world struggled to find one universities are not delivering on this basic educational uh, i think uh, imperative I think that's right. And uh, I, I, just to extend that uh, part of the conversation, I think some of the work we do is directly uh, trying to assist and contribute to a conversation about how tertiary education shifts their expectations in terms of the type of student they would like to uh, come into the university, but also the kind of provision of, 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 of education, the experience of education they offer that then prepare students to contribute to that sustainable world that we're talking about. There cannot be a disconnection. There cannot be dissonance between uh, the admissions criteria and then what we expect and hope to happen five or ten years afterwards. So, for instance, from an international school perspective, one of the great measures of success is what students are doing five or ten years after they leave the school. Are they contributing to, to a better, more peaceful world? I remember Actually, when, when I first met my first graduating cohort of diploma students, 10 years after they graduated from Jerusalem, one, one of them was working for the UN, one of them was doing a, a, a PhD on water, water appropriation in Palestine, uh, another was uh, working for Save the Children in Ramallah, another one uh, was working for Tony Blair's Quartet. I'm not sure that's a measure of success, but in, in its pure essence, one could strongly uh, argue that they were all engaged in a passionate pursuit of a better more peaceful world which is what we had tried to instill in them in the first place from from a systems perspective in school i also concur with richard that one has to train one has to bring the community to the threshold of their own mind by providing relevant meaningful training so what we've done most recently in amsterdam is to shift mindsets from uh, having uh, the expectation that uh, there is a budget that provides for whatever needs you have to creating a sense of what a circular economy can mean in in terms of um, in terms of contributing to it to to how the school functions how, how you manage your department and how you serve the community through through uh, initiatives and so and, and that's and that's that's uh, that's something which is manageable it's something that can happen incrementally and it means you're shifting culture gradually even within the culture of urgency that we're trying to instill um so thank thank you both for your incredibly insightful thoughts and perspectives um we'll continuously return to the concept of systems thinking throughout the podcast um firstly as it's such a fundamental aspect of tackling climate change but secondly because it underpins the entire podcast itself um, and both of you have given us a great foundation to build on um, the the final section of the podcast um, is just a bit of either self-reflection or raising awareness of uh, something that you've encountered in the news recently um, but for the first episode I just want to focus a little bit on self-reflection um, an important habit to adopt to kind of while we talk about climate change also thinking about our own climate impacts um, and in the context of the climate crisis, um, because humans find it difficult to plan and think about the long term, it's sometimes harder to appreciate the impact you can have on the long term. Um, so um, I think one of the 
positive things I've done in the last few weeks. Um, I've made a conscientious effort to take more trains rather than flying. I've just moved to Amsterdam. Um, basic things like having a recycling cup, taking my own bags to the supermarket and stuff like that. Um, but I am more and more aware of the amount of, um, and this is maybe a kind of low level superficial consideration of my impact, but um, more aware of how much plastic we use every single day. Um, primarily because last year we'd always take bags to the market and then put fruit in them. But the amount of plastic that we wrap our foods in at the supermarket is just astonishing. And it was kind of a shock to reimmerse myself in that again. Um, so I have been collecting more plastic. And then in the Netherlands, they put it in the bin rather than in a recycling bin. And it allegedly gets separated later, but not entirely sure about that. Um, so I always kind of think, well, am I doing the right thing by buying this food in plastic? What else do I do if not that kind of thing? So any reflections on your part? Well, it's, it's, it's challenging. Uh, we are all guilty probably of hypocrisy. Uh, it's, it's, and change is never clean or linear. Uh, and one has to be both hard on oneself and demanding and, and Shemaim, you're asking yourself the right questions about your own conduct and behavior, but also somewhat forgiving in the sense that change is nonlinear. It's up and down. And Runciman, Cambridge uh, historian and philosopher, wrote a brilliant book called Political Hypo Hypocrisy about 10 years ago, which talked about the fact that change is nonlinear and that sometimes the pursuit of perfection can get in the way of progress. Um, there is no perfect way of doing this. There is imperfection anyway everywhere and we all of us have to just single-mindedly say we're going to keep trying and we're going to push harder and we're going to demand higher standards from everyone especially those in power i fly too much but i like to think it's for a good cause in the sense that i i fly for purpose to do things with people usually with powerful actors to try and <clears throat> convince them to to take transformational steps in terms of their impact on sustainability um in Cape Town, we faced a, a day zero on, on water three years ago. We'd had four years of drought, and we were seriously running out of water. And all of us had to change the way we, we related to water and used it. I've tried to maintain some of those habits, so sounds ridiculous. But when I get in the shower, if it's warm enough, which it generally is here, I will wet myself, then turn the shower off. And this is going to sound a little bit too intimate for such a thing, but I then... <laughs> I then cleanse myself with the soap without the, the water running. Because when you think about it, it doesn't make sense to try and wash yourself with soap as the water's running. You can save a lot of water by simply doing that because the water's only on for 40 seconds, 20 seconds at the beginning, 20 seconds at the end. And if we all have that kind of consciousness around the resources we're using, I think it can make a very big contribution. For my part, uh, I also remember a sustainability summit where we, where a young, a young gentleman from a United World College, uh, asked if he could do a carbon audit of all the participants, all the one hundred delegates who were attending, and we gave him the next, the floor the next morning, and with his finger pointing in multiple directions, he suggested that that there were a significant number of political hypocrites in that room. Uh, but but in, in, in the best fashion of UWC, he was also a solution-focused young man. And he said, well, what are you going to do now? He challenged us. And that is the question we were asking the whole delegation. It's a question we challenge 
constantly through the through our work together and so it, it seems only right that we should ask ourselves the same question at that point I gave up flying I'd probably been flying too much for 10 years or so and I haven't flown I've flown maybe twice necessarily for the over the last 12 months or so um, and and I've given up driving I don't have a car I haven't had a car for uh, uh, five or six years now and I have to say that that single decision has been one of the most liberating of my life it's and and that and that's a beautiful my example of, of mind shift uh, because there was something that I once thought was essential which I now realize is irrelevant and I've adjusted my life accordingly and my life is much richer as a result Thank you so much, Richard and Andrew, for your time, your invaluable insights, and for your honesty and openness in reflecting upon your own climate impactful actions. Um, I've loved having you on. Thank you for being part of the first ever episode and for spending your time with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Shemaine. I feel great. Thank you. Like with the rest of the series. It's, it's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to you, listener, if you tuned into the, this first ever episode of The Climate Angle. You may have noticed and indeed potentially been critical of the fact that the language I in particular use to talk about climate change has not been consistent. If you have any comments, readings or feedback about this, then do get in touch via our Twitter at The Climate Angle and make sure you listen to our next episode, which will be all about the use and impact of language around climate change. What do we want? Donut economic. When do we want it? Uh, yesterday? It's better for your sustainability. Will that affect my shop mobility? It will need some implementation. That might ruin my reputation. Well, we don't want that sort of deviation.